The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 7th. Japan bombed the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor on this day in 1941. This is what drew the United States into World War II, but its origins are from well, well before World War II began in Europe. We have to start with Japan. Japan is a tiny island nation. It just doesn't have a lot of land or natural resources. So in the early 20th century, Japan became really increasingly aggressive toward its neighbors in an attempt to get access to the resources that those neighbors had. This goal was to build a massive and very wealthy empire that spanned the Pacific and Asia. And at first, a lot of this was focused on China. Active warfare between China and Japan began in 1937, but that followed years of Japanese aggression against China, including the occupation of Manchuria six years before And this was not just a matter of an international dispute or of one nation trying to colonize another. China's treatment at the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army was absolutely brutal and destructive. It had led for calls for the United States to intervene long before the United States became part of any of this. So the United States was trying not to get involved in the 1930s. After World War I, there was a lot of isolationism in the United States. 
But even so, after word spread of war crimes and atrocities being committed by Japan and Asia, there were more and more calls for the United States to do something. Rather than taking direct military action, the United States started implementing sanctions against Japan. This included a trade embargo that cut off most of Japan's access to things like oil, which Japan needed, especially in wartime. By December of 1941, after these sanctions had been in place for a while, the United States naval fleet was stationed at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And the general perception was this was a pretty safe place for the fleet to be. It was thousands of miles from the continent of the United States and from Japan. So while the United States was expecting some kind of attack, the relations with Japan had reached that point, it definitely wasn't expecting that attack to happen at Pearl Harbor. So the naval base there was relatively undefended. Even though the war seemed increasingly likely, the military hadn't taken all that many steps to fortify the base or to expand their reconnaissance activities around Hawaii. All this meant that when the attack did happen at about 8 a.m. on December 7th, it came as a total surprise, and the results were absolutely devastating. In less than two hours, every battleship in Pearl Harbor was significantly damaged. Two of them were completely lost. More than 300 airplanes were damaged or destroyed, and more than 2,400 people were killed. More than 1,000 were wounded, and this included soldiers, sailors, and civilians. Although this was catastrophic, and it's often remembered as a total loss for the United States Naval Fleet, in reality, the United States Naval strategy had evolved beyond the use of battleships. The battleships were the ships that were mostly in the harbor at Pearl Harbor. Instead, by this point, the United States was making extensive use of aircraft carriers, and the aircraft carrier fleet was not in Pearl Harbor that day. In fact, there were no aircraft carriers in Pearl Harbor on December 7th. So the aircraft carriers that at that point were so central to military strategy were not affected by the bombing. At this point, though, the United States population had been really divided in terms of whether to go to war. Public opinion had been gradually shifting over the previous few years, but there was still a huge strain of isolationism and a lot of people who just did not want the United States to become involved in another war at all. But after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that completely changed, and the public and the government alike were united behind the idea of going to war against Japan. After the United States declared war on Japan in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States not long after. That brought the United States into World War II in both Europe and the Pacific. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in tomorrow for the birth of a woman who was called a king. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello, everybody. I'm Eves, and you're tuned into This Day in History class, a show where we travel back in time one day at a time. The day was December 7th, 1963. Instant Replay debuted during the CBS broadcast of the Army-Navy football game in Philadelphia. In 1955, George Retzlaff, the producer for the broadcast Hockey Night in Canada, used a wet film or kinescope replay on a goal. The replay was not instant and he never used the process again, but it was a memorable moment in sports broadcasting. But in 1963, Tony Verna, a director at CBS, wanted to try out a new videotape instant replay system at the college football game between the Army Black Knights and the Navy Midshipmen. He wanted to be able to fill in lulls in action and to give viewers a better view of what was actually happening on the field. Eager to improve the at-home audience's viewing experience, Verna developed a system that used a videotape machine to produce an instant replay. The Army-Navy game was supposed to take place a week earlier, but it was postponed because of the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. Kennedy had been slated to attend the Army-Navy game. Verna was not sure whether the system would work during the game, and he didn't tell the CBS crew about his plans to try it out until the day of the game. The tape machine that Verna used was an Ampex VTR-1000. The instant replay device relied on tape decks that weighed around 1,200 pounds and were the size of refrigerators. It was housed in a truck. There were technical difficulties as he tried to get the right footage. Because Verna couldn't get a new roll of videotape, he had to use tape that had an episode of I Love Lucy on it. Some of the replay tests showed flashes of Lucille Ball's face. But in the fourth quarter, Army quarterback Carl Rowley Stitchway scored on a one-yard touchdown run. Seconds after the touchdown happened, Verna played the footage again. Announcer Lindsey Nelson, concerned that viewers would be confused by the replay, confirmed that Army had not actually scored again. The original tape that stored the footage has since been lost. The technology was prohibitively expensive for some schools, but more broadcasts began using instant replay, and slow motion and freeze frame were introduced. Instant replay also began to be used by sports officials for plays or calls that were dubious. This use of the technology has proven controversial at times, and different sports leagues have different rules on how replay can be used during a game. 
I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Want to impress your internet crush? Show them your history smarts by sharing something you learned on the show. Don't forget to tag us at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Or if you want to get a little more fancy, you can send us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you tomorrow, same place. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that rockets through history at the speed of one day per day. I'm Gabe Lusier, and in this episode, we're looking back at the time when an unknown astronaut grabbed a camera and gave mankind a whole new perspective on the blue marble we call home. The day was December 7th, 1972. Five hours after launching from the Kennedy Space Center, the crew aboard the Apollo 17 spacecraft captured a rare image of the Earth in its entirety. The photo's official designation in the NASA archives is AS17-148-22727. But most of us know it better as the blue marble shot. The iconic picture shows a fully illuminated view of the globe, extending from the Mediterranean Sea to the South Polar Ice Cap. To be clear, the blue marble wasn't the first photo of the whole Earth. Unmanned satellites had taken similar pictures as early as 1967. It was, however, the first such image seen by the public, and the only photo of the whole sunlit planet ever taken by a human being. NASA released the image on December 23rd, four days after the crew had safely returned from the moon and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean. 
The photo was printed on the front page of just about every newspaper in the world, and the rapidly growing environmental movement of the 1970s quickly adopted it as the symbol of global awareness. Because the taxpayer-funded image was in the public domain from the start, it has since appeared on everything from postage stamps and t-shirts to billboards and car commercials. To this day, it remains the most requested picture in the NASA archives, and it's believed to be one of the most widely reproduced and distributed photos ever taken. And yet, half a century later, we still don't know who actually took it. There are only three candidates, and they are, of course, the three men aboard the rocket. Eugene Cernan, the commander of Apollo 17, Harrison Jack Schmidt, the lunar module pilot, and Ron Evans, the command module pilot. NASA policy is to attribute the crew as a whole for all mission photography, except in rare cases when credit is indisputable, such as when the only two astronauts on the moon take photos of each other. The prevailing theory, based on analysis of the NASA transcripts and mission logs, is that Harrison Schmidt was likely the true photographer. If you're wondering why the crew didn't confirm which of them took the picture, the answer is that they couldn't agree. At various times over the years, all three of them claimed to have snapped the blue marble. Regardless of who took the photo, it was a one-in-a-million shot that easily could have been missed. Most of the astronauts who flew lunar missions never saw a full Earth, and all the photos they took showed the planet at least partly in shadow, such as the famous Earthrise shot of 1968. Getting a clear shot of the full globe was difficult for a couple reasons. First of all, the crew would have to be going somewhere at least 20,000 miles away from the Earth, like to the moon, for instance. Only then would they be far enough back to see the whole planet. But even when a crew was at the right distance, the only time they could snap a photo of the complete Earth unobscured was when passing through a precise position between the Earth and the Sun. Outside of that sweet spot, the planet would always be at least partially in shadow. It's a narrow enough window to easily miss, especially when traveling in a spacecraft at thousands of miles an hour. The blue marble was also a lucky shot from a mission perspective. Like every other aspect of the Apollo missions, photo sessions were meticulously planned and scheduled. Weight considerations limited the amount of cameras and film that could be brought aboard, meaning that each individual shot had to be planned in advance. However, the blue marble shot was not part of that plan. The timestamp on the photo doesn't line up with any of the approved shots on the schedule. That's because at a little over five hours into their flight, one of the crewmen looked out the window and just couldn't help but take a picture. What he saw was so striking that he immediately reached for the only 70mm camera that wasn't stowed away and took four pictures, each about a minute apart. The sequential shots were necessary to ensure he got the full planet in frame, as there was no viewfinder on the camera. As a result of trying different aims, the famous photo, which was the second in the series, 
was actually taken while the camera was upside down. The resulting photo showed Antarctica at the top of the globe, though the image is typically inverted right side up when reproduced. And before you blame the photographer for being sloppy, remember that he was weightless at the time and could very well have been upside down himself. Whoever took the shot didn't say anything about it to his crewmates or on the radio, possibly because they weren't sure if they had gotten the full planet in frame and didn't want to get anyone's hopes up. Twelve days later, the Apollo 17 landed safely back on Earth, and the film was processed in a photo lab at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. The film technician who developed the photo knew the crew had captured something special, a view of the Earth as few had ever seen it before. Apollo 17 was the final mission of the Apollo program. It was also the last time to date that a human traveled far enough into space to view the complete Earth at once. In the time since our last trip to the moon, plenty of impressive photos similar to the blue marble have been taken. However, they've all been captured by satellites, and most are composites assembled from different images in order to depict a globe with ideal weather. As a result, the original photo from 1972 still holds deep significance as the only full view of the Earth with a human eye behind the lens. In that way, it doesn't really matter who snapped the photo. The important thing is that we have it, a breathtaking reminder that when faced with the blue marble, we and our differences and all the things that pull us apart are so much smaller than we fear. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you enjoyed today's episode, let us know by leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also keep up with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. And you can write directly to me at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work.